This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I have back Brian Silliman. Brian is a partner at Hughes Hubbard and heads the firm's Harris office. We take up a couple of articles that Brian has recently authored. The first is Five Steps to Establishing a Corporate ESG Policy for the Moment. And the second is Keeping the Clean and Clean Energy. In view of the recent disaster uh, around power in the state of Texas, I thought these were incredibly prescient articles as we talk about the intersection of ESG and energy, and more importantly, what's the role of the compliance practitioner in all of this? Uh, we have some really interesting insights. As always, Brian brings uh, clarity and conciseness to the discussion. I know you will find it interesting and, more importantly, useful. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and I have back Brian Silliman. Brian's the head of the Paris office for Hughes Hubbard, and he had contacted me a while back about some two really interesting papers he's written. Um, we are recording this after the snowpocalypse in Texas, and it turns out his articles are even more prescient. So uh, this is the first podcast I've been able to record since we got power back. So with that, Brian, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit me with me and welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I would not have predicted the circumstances in Houston, but hopefully things uh, improve from here. So uh, the first paper you wrote was Five Steps to Establishing a Corporate ESG Policy for the Present Moment. You co-authored this with your colleague, Alexandra Poe. And I wanted to start off with uh, why did you write this paper? Yeah, sure. So Sandra, Alexandra, Sandra uh, Poe is a corporate partner of mine uh, in New York. She's been uh, interested in and working on sustainable investing uh, and ESG issues before they were all nicely sort of packaged in this ESG package. And both of us, I think, were struck by how increasingly prevalent and important ESG has become, especially in the last year or two. Uh, I think there's a couple of potential reasons for that. One is the, the famous Larry Fink uh, um, message to corporate leaders from BlackRock uh, about climate risk being investment risk. The other is the statement on the business roundtable on stakeholder capitalism. And we thought, you know, with all of this attention on ESG, that it would be interesting to try to come up with some practical guidance and guidelines for companies to to try to address it. So. Brian, one of the reasons I found it so prescient, obviously, with a change in administration in the United States, uh, ESG is now more in favor with the regulators. But I think more importantly is the the public, whether that be the shareholder, investing public, or the customer public, or even the employee public, is demanding more of sustainability. And what I found in your paper was a framework for companies to think through how they respond to all of those uh, stakeholders, and perhaps even more. So I was wondering if you could maybe just walk us through some of the steps uh, you guys suggest. Yeah, absolutely. And we tried to 
to break it down into what would hopefully be sort of manageable pieces because it is a an enormous exercise, or at least it can be. And I think we recognize it's a process uh, that companies will have to go to go through. Um, but the first, I guess, at a, a basic level is to consider what may be right for the company at this point in time. Um, some corporates have uh, advanced on these issues already uh, a good bit. Some are just getting started. And it's important, I think, to take a look at the landscape that's out there. There's a number of voluntary standards, uh, TCFD, SASB, GRI being uh, three of perhaps the most prevalent, uh, and seeing what may make the most sense for your organization at the time. Um, the second and third ones are, are interrelated in that uh, on one hand, it's important to take a look at what might already be required in terms of your reporting and disclosure obligations. There's some countries, uh, I'm based in France, France has had uh, mandatory reporting uh, for certain large corporations on non-financial issues for a number of years. So to the extent that your company, your organization is already uh, disclosing on certain of these issues, that could play nicely into your approach. And relatedly, I think it's important to take a look at your specific industry, your specific geographic footprint, uh, and what might make the most sense for you to evaluate in each of the E, S, and the G buckets. Uh, so things like greenhouse gas emissions, environmental waste in the E, uh, in the S bucket, uh, things like employee safety, uh, HR policies, hiring policies, uh, gender and discrimination policies, uh, things that all are getting a good bit of attention, uh, and rightfully so these days. And then in the G category, uh, both how you are complying with regulatory issues, but also uh, board makeup and governance issues more broadly. Uh, and looking at what your peers may be doing in certain of your industries can be a useful starting point in that respect. Um, we also thought that it was important to point out that companies may have already uh, tools and mechanisms and frameworks that they can pull from to help in this area. And the corporate uh, anti-corruption compliance program is one that we saw parallels to where there may already be assessments of third-party risk. There may be uh, information that's being gathered from procurement or from other departments or from HSE that you can take and put together into part of your ESG analysis. Uh, and then as a last point to recognize that this is a process and that it's important as part of the implementation uh, to recognize that you'll need to, to test and to uh, modify and perhaps enhance things going forward. So one of the I really like your uh, first point around uh, do what's not right for your company, but really start with what uh, you can do and look at what you have. And in the anti-corruption world, we call that a risk assessment. But I think many companies and most specifically compliance practitioners may not know what their company has in terms of ESG. So if the example of, uh, well, we've moved to paperless. Something as simple yep. as that could be a part of it. So do you advocate really a, a company not assessing their risk, but assessing what they have to see what they are already doing in the ESG space and maybe build from that as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that this is an area that uh, benefits from information from a number of different departments. And so you may see, and we've seen companies that are forming ESG committees, whether that's at the board level or at the management level or both, uh, and taking information from different 
areas that they may not, as you point out, necessarily think at first blush would feed into an ESG policy or program, but can really be quite substantial. And so looking at HSE information, for example, or taking information from procurement uh, and purchasing, uh, as well as the more traditional sort of compliance um, pieces, I think all play into this approach. And we thought that you know, those organizations that have experienced developing a robust anti-corruption compliance program, for example, will see some some parallels in this respect. You know, there's elements of that process that I think uh, translate very well into the ESG space, things like setting a good tone at the top, uh, developing a framework, developing policies and procedures, uh, implementing those through training, through communication, uh, through outreach, and then uh, having a, a process of testing, testing, revising, and and continuously improving. Ryan, I recently had the opportunity to interview Kim Yapchai. Kim is the chief compliance officer at Tenneco, uh, a major uh, chemicals firm in the United States. And last year, she was given the additional title of um, head of S- sustainability. And that was, uh, for me, a, a major uh, move companies recognizing that many of these concepts, as you have just articulated, fit within the compliance space. But it, I really wanted to, to use that as perhaps an introduction to why do you think that every compliance practitioner needs to be aware and cognizant of these and how a compliance practitioner can help drive this discussion forward? Yeah, I would say I, I think there's two main points there. One is is um, the point that I made previously, which is that compliance officers have a lot of these skills built into their their roles and their responsibilities. And I think that they, you know, compliance is a, at its very essence sort of a risk management and also a, a change management process. And so, you know, anytime you're implementing a large um, program like that, that's intended to change the way people are thinking about how they go about their their business and their activities, um, it requires a full-time commitment. It requires a, a certain skill set. And I think those um, skills are very transferable uh, between the what we may sort of traditionally have viewed as compliance officer role and this broader ESG type of, of uh, function. I think also you will see um, a move from the this being a more voluntary uh, initiative to a more mandatory one. And we've seen that here in the EU already with the uh, adoption of the EU taxonomy, with, which comes into play um, this year uh, for certain financial market participants and next year for large corporates and requires a very detailed uh, disclosure for those companies that are claiming to be involved in climate mitigation or climate adaptation activities. And the effort, the idea behind that was to try to avoid the phenomena of, of greenwashing, where people will say they're involved in a sustainable activity, but not really put the, the metrics and the testing behind it. Uh, and I think you'll, you'll see that uh, come to the United States. There's already been talk of the SEC weighing in more on this issue. The SEC is appointed for the first time uh, ever someone dedicated to assessing uh, ESG issues there. Um, and I would uh, expect that it's a matter of time before there's some form of more mandatory disclosure. And I think that naturally plays into the legal and compliance role as well. I don't think people often think of the legal world as a marketplace, but I would say in the marketplace of uh, plaintiff shareholder lawsuits, 
Uh, we have already seen many of those where the claim is basically that, hey, your company is not living up to what it says it lives up to. And the thing I really liked about your remarks there and indeed your entire framework is it gives you a way as a corporation to answer those types of claims uh, without uh, uh, that doesn't even get to the regulatory part. And when the SEC comes out or or other regulatory body in the United States, you'll be able to to show that you have a framework you're moving forward and you're documenting every step. Exactly. Exactly. I think that'll be increasingly important. Uh, and hopefully there'll be some uh, additional um, coherence and, and consistency because that is one of the um, criticisms of the ESG space is that there's so many different reporting um, mechanisms out there. It's difficult to sometimes know which one to, to report under and maybe get uh, coherence among them. So hopefully we see some greater um, consolidation there. Ryan, when you contacted me about this paper, you also referenced another paper you'd written uh, called Keeping the Clean and Clean Energy. And now having gone through what the state of Texas did over the past week, where uh, we had rolling blackouts literally for a week, not simply from clean or green energy, but from all energy sources, I found your paper even more prescient. So uh, as much as I wanted to visit with you about ESG, I really wanted to visit with you about uh, this paper as well, because one of the things we saw was not simply a failure of cleaner green energy, like I said, a failure of all uh, power producers. And it and it's one of the things that struck me was the need to have a mix of different power producers, uh, solar, wind, nuclear, uh, I hate to say coal, but coal, uh, a natural gas, um, and I was wondering really how those thoughts you had around simply the clean and clean energy, how it relates to ESG, really help us focus on having a mix of resources so that if one goes down, others can still step up, yet staying within the whole uh, ESG umbrella. Yeah, well, I think it, the two uh, the two topics are certainly interrelated, right? And I think as we see more and more corporates making uh, carbon neutral or even sometimes carbon negative uh, pledges um, and more and more clean and renewable purchasing, that will put uh, an increase in demand. Obviously, there has been a, a huge increase in demand and supply for clean and renewable uh, energy, whether that's through uh, power purchase agreements uh, from corporates or the government itself or governments really around the world that are driving these changes through different policy mechanisms. And ultimately, what I think drove me and my colleague in Washington to do the paper was that this is really going to already is and will continue to result in in quite a geopolitical shift. Um, And with that will come additional, certainly additional opportunities. And we see that a lot through innovation, whether it's electric, electric vehicles or clean hydrogen or any of the sort of clean and renewable technologies that are coming out but it will also present uh, risks. And I think that's what ultimately um, interested us in uh, in doing this is, you know, as a compliance professional myself, someone who's helping companies evaluate risk is to to try to see where are the risks coming down the road. And certainly the the shift into clean and renewables will, will be part of that. I first uh, became aware about sort of clean and renewables. I was uh, in-house counsel with Halliburton uh, in the first decade of this year, 
And I went to a couple of events where they were talking about wind. They were talking about solar. And two things struck me. Uh, the first one was, look, this is no silver bullet. It is a tool. We can yep. use this tool or choose not to use this tool. But the second thing was, uh, and this is back when wind was uh, you know, 0.01% of the market. And, of course, it's increased in many states since that time. But it struck me that if we could get a mix of these renewables, we could extend out the life of fossil fuels and actually would be a market positive because we would have energy for X number of years into the future. Are those discussions ongoing in Europe now? Are you a part of any of those sort of business-related discussions as well? Yeah, we've. I think it's fair to say that they are. Um, the EU, as in the, I would say, the ESG space, the EU seems to be a bit ahead of the where the U.S. is on its commitment to, or at least its uh, funding of clean and renewables. So with the EU Green Deal, they've devoted, I believe, a trillion euros or so uh, to clean and renewable energies uh, in different different types, uh, a lot going to hydrogen, but also to wind, uh, to solar, to electric vehicle infrastructure. And um, we see it with clients as well. Uh, we see it with clients, some of which are more traditional energy companies, which are uh, not saying that we're going to give up on our traditional energy activities, but are increasingly investing in the clean and renewable space uh, in order to diversify and to position themselves for uh, what I think they see both as um, a necessary sort of evolution and change and also the realities of the market here in the EU going forward. Brian, when you and your colleagues get a call from a corporation or perhaps even go visit with corporations around the uh, ESG issues, who are you talking to? You're talking to the general counsel or you're talking to a chief compliance officer or you're talking to the head of sustainability or, or someone else within the company? Yeah, our points of contact vary depending on the company uh, and how they're organized internally. Um, traditionally, a lot of the uh, discussions are with the, the general counsels, with the chief compliance officers. But um, I think as we see, you know, per our, our prior points, as we see these areas sort of coming together, uh, it's increasingly likely that you'll have sustainability, uh, human resources, and um, in a lot of cases, maybe uh, a committee of the board or parts of the board devoted to it as well. And that's a great point I wanted to specifically focus on is, is our boards finally waking up to, to seeing this is uh, an opportunity, this is a risk, this is a, a business process and decision that they need to at least have some oversight on? I think so. I think so. And I think it's driven both by the competitive nature of the, the market. I think we see we see that in the energy, energy industry where uh, certain companies are positioning themselves as moving quicker towards the clean and renewable area. And so, um, you know, whether it's driven by their competitors uh, and feeling a need to do that, also driven by investors. Uh, you know, I mentioned BlackRock at the outset uh, as the world's largest asset manager, uh, but it's certainly not the only one that is pushing for these types of, of discussions to be held at the board level and really engaging with the board and in some cases even voting against um, members of the board of directors that they feel are not sufficiently uh, well-versed in these ESG or climate-related areas. Um, and on the in, uh, investment front, we also see both the sort of asset managers but also sovereign wealth funds 
that are increasingly involved in the discussions. Brian, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our uh, listeners wanted any more information. Uh, where could they go? Yeah, absolutely. So we have links to the the articles that you mentioned on the Hughes Hubbard website. Uh, I also have uh, linked them through my LinkedIn account. If anyone wants to connect on LinkedIn, uh, happy to do that. And I'll I'll put a, a plug out for our upcoming uh, uh, anti-corruption alert, which is a free resource that Hughes Hubbard point, puts out uh, about once a year, uh, which will be coming out uh, fairly soon. And Hopefully, there'll be some some colleagues on to speak with you about it uh, as well, Tom. Brian, I hope that uh, I could perhaps call upon you uh, down the road to uh, when we get into the Biden administration six months or perhaps further out to see where they may be going in ESG and really where you can uh, help companies understand what their obligations may be and to satisfy those not only from the legal uh, realm, but also from the business side as well. With pleasure. Absolutely. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce the pre-publication pre-sale of my latest book, The Compliance Handbook, Second Edition, published by LexisNexis. It will be published in April. Quite simply, this is the best single volume, single author book on compliance programs. The creation, the design, the implementation, and the enhancements of best practices compliance programs are all laid out in this book. If you're in the compliance field, the compliance discipline, this is the book for you, far better than any other book on the market, if I may say so myself. I'm going to link to it in the show notes for a pre-sale. There's also a discount. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>